bow for a moment of prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come to you this morning, we pray that you would purify our hearts and our minds and get them focused on you. I pray, Lord, that the message we have today would, would serve as a means to that end, that it would glorify you, and that through, through your word we would see how to find peace in the storm, how to find peace in you, true peace, true lasting peace, through your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this is kind of a special week for me. It was three years ago, if you guys can believe it. Uh, three years ago, I came out here for the first time and checked this place out. And uh, wow, three years go by really, really fast uh, when you're having fun, right? Well, we're going to continue our Christmas series today, and it's great to see you guys. Like I said, I wasn't even sure how many people we'd have here today because uh, so many people are, are out of town or, or sick. Uh, tis the season to be sneezing and, you know, all that fun stuff. Uh, pray for the Gilmores. I know that everybody in the house has the stomach flu, uh, so we want to keep them in prayer. That's, that's not fun. Um, anyway, you know, there's a story of a man who was walking alongside the edge of a cliff, and he slipped off, but somehow managed to grab hold of a root which was protruding from the soil just a few feet down from the ledge, and realizing that even the most gifted gymnast in the world, you know, if you, if you watch those guys, especially when they're doing the iron rings, and they, man, those guys are, are insane, but he realizes that the gymnast, uh, that even the most gifted gymnast wouldn't be able to swing himself up there and get back up to the ledge somehow, and so he, he calls out, is anybody up there? And a voice thundered back, Behold, it is I, the Lord, uh, who stands up here. Do you believe I am he? And so the man thought about it for a second, and he said, Fine, yes, I, I believe it's you. I, I really do, but I can't hang on here much longer. And God responded, saying, That's all right. If you really believe, you can go ahead and just let go of the branch, and everything will be fine. I'll rescue you. And so the man thought about it for a second, and he cried out, Is anybody else up there? The truth is, good times don't test or strengthen our faith. Good times don't test or strengthen our faith. We don't realize how fragile or how strong uh, our faith really is until we are in the midst of some type of personal crisis. And who hasn't had one of those? Raise your hand. You can just leave right now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Who hasn't had a crisis? We've all had them. And, as you, and I'm, I'm encouraged anyway, I don't know about you guys, but I'm encouraged as I read through the Bible. I don't see people whose lives were just so easy and everything went right all the time for them. You know, that, that's how we want our lives to go. But when you look through the Bible, especially, you know, the Old Testament, you see that one prophet after another, one righteous person after another, they go through all of these, these crisis situation and, uh, situations in which God puts his people to the test kind of consistently. And by the way, it's not because he doesn't know how strong their faith is. It's because they don't know how strong or how weak their faith might be. Uh, not because he can't see everything, but because we can't see everything. We as human beings have just this, this finite perspective. Um, and the people around us probably don't see how strong our faith is either until we're put into a really difficult situation and our faith gets tested. And a tested strength is a strengthened faith. When our faith is tested, 
What is it that we need the most? And there are probably a variety of answers uh, for that. For, for many people, and I, I'd include myself in this category, the answer for me is peace. You know, when, when you're in the midst of a, of a really hard situation, a really difficult situation, and it seems like everything's just spinning out of control, I, I do something, you know, I'll, I'll grasp for peace. And I think that's what most people uh, would do. I'm reminded of the time that you know Jesus and the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee, and everything's you know pretty, pretty okay. The seas aren't too rough; they're they're just kind of average. And all of a sudden, there's this horrific demonic storm that comes upon them, and the the disciples are sure that they're gonna die. And Jesus is asleep; he's sleeping through the whole thing. What did Jesus have? That the disciples, who were sure that they were about to die, what is it that Jesus had that they didn't have? Peace. Peace about the situation. I'd say that's at least part of the answer. And you know, peace is something that our culture, our society, especially today, is so desperate for. We're a Xanax culture, right? We're, we live in a culture where the answer to any fear and any anxiety is, just pop a pill and you know, you'll, you'll relax. You'll, you'll, you'll get peace. Uh, yeah, right. Um, well, there was an article last year in New York Magazine uh, in which the author tackled the subject of how Americans learn to stop worrying and, wor- uh, worrying and worry and pop pills instead. Uh, just a disclaimer on that, by the way. She wasn't saying, uh, the author wasn't saying that nobody ever needs medication for anxiety. You know, if somebody's like over the edge, uh, you know, with maybe a biological predisposition toward anxiety, she's not saying that they shouldn't, uh, you know, have to be on some type of medication. Uh, she was simply addressing the issue of how people are being taught to what is clinically referred to as low-grade anxiety. Like, you have a test tomorrow, and, and, and you're, you've got so much anxiety that you just can't live within your own skin. And so what do you do? You, you, you pop a pill. Or uh, let's say, you, you've got, let's say you, it's something different, something that's even less stressful. You've got to go to downtown Seattle. Maybe that's more stressful, depending on the time of day, right? You've got to go to downtown Seattle, and so you're, you're, you're really stressed out, and so you pop a Xanax. Please don't get behind the wheel if that's what you're doing, by the way. Um, but she writes this. She writes, in these anxious times, Xanax offers a lot. It dissolves your worries, whatever they are, like a special kiss from mommy. Please. She says you can, you can take it when you need to without committing to months or years of talk therapy, end quote. Man, that's, that's sad. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that's exactly the type of, uh, of mindset that the big pharmaceutical companies want people to have. Uh, Xanax, like any other solution that the world has ever had to offer for anxiety or, you know, when you're in the midst of chaos and need something to calm your nerves, Xanax is nothing but a temporary fix like a Band-Aid on a severed limb. It just doesn't do, it doesn't give you real peace. Last week we looked at what Mary had to teach us in the biblical narrative of Christ's birth, we looked at what she had to teach us about responding to God's call in a person's life. But the calling didn't stop with her. Biological issues aside, yeah, you know, she was the one who was going to be bearing the child. Biological issues aside, the same calling was given to the man who was pledged to marry her, Joseph. Yes, uh, Mary's life was about to be turned upside down and it was about to become really chaotic because of God's calling in her life. But you know what? So was Joseph's. 
his life was about to take a turn for the chaotic. You know, one of my uh, favorite tools for, for sermon preparation is this book I have. It's kind of a who's who of the Bible. It compiles all the information that we have on various characters uh, in the Bible, people who, who weren't necessarily main characters, but their name is spread out throughout several books. And so what the author does is he, he takes those little tidbits of information here and there, and he compiles them all into one very organized uh, systematic biographical paragraph or two. It's very helpful. Uh, conspicuous by his absence in this book, believe it or not, is Joseph. He's not in there. The fact is, we know very, very, very little about Joseph. While Luke, as we saw last week, Luke interviewed Mary personally. He got her testimony through you know, a, a sit-down conversation where they, they, where they talked about what Mary had been through. Uh, and thus that gave, uh, that's why Luke gives a significant emphasis to her side of the story in the nativity scene. Matthew focuses on Joseph's perspective. That's because that's what was important to the first century Jews. Nevertheless, not a single one this is unbelievable. Not a single one of the four gospel narratives gives one quote to Joseph. He's never quoted as saying anything, not even one time. We know that he was a carpenter, so you know, maybe he was just the strong and silent type. Uh, you know, I don't know, but whatever conclusion we may draw from the fact that Joseph is never quoted as saying anything, may the one thing that we're never tempted to conclude is that Joseph didn't play a very important, a vital role in the story of the fulfillment of God's promise to send the Messiah. You know, we have a saying in our culture that actions speak louder than words. And Joseph is a wonderful, wonderful illustration of the truth of this principle. Now let's think about this from God's perspective for just a moment. He was going to be sending his only begotten son, whom he had loved through all of eternity. He was going to be sending his only begotten son into the world, and he had the freedom to handpick the dad. I mean, let's think about this for a second. Uh, Dads especially, you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, You know, let's say that you have the, uh, you're going to be leaving. Maybe you're going to be dying, and uh, you need to pick somebody to, uh, to take over raising your one and only son. What, are you going to just draw names from a hat? Of course not. You're going to find somebody who is the most qualified person. You're going to find the best man for the job. Because let's be honest, while any male has the potential to be a biological father, not every male is cut out to be a dad. And that's just the way it is. With that said, while Joseph was a sinner... Just like you and me. He had his faults, his flaws, his failures. He had all that just like you and me. He had to be a man of great faith who, like Mary, found favor with God. Now, in reading the Christmas story, we don't even see a hint of stress from Joseph. I am positive, just, just from a, the, the perspective of a human being uh, and a dad, um, that he had to be feeling stressed. There had to be so much anxiety in his life. It had to be there. But that's not what people remembered about him. That's not what stuck out about him. None of the biblical authors record a single negative word about Joseph, not even close. Instead, what we'll see today is that he was a righteous man. He was a loving 
husband, and he was a fitting dad for the Messiah. Just like there was much that we could learn from Mary's response to God's calling in her life, there's plenty, plenty that we can learn from God's calling in Joseph's life as well. So let's pick it up with Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, or pledged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so what we see here is that Joseph is pledged to marry this woman named Mary. Uh, During the time of being pledged, a couple would be encouraged to get to know one another. They wouldn't shack up. They wouldn't cohabitate. They wouldn't uh, you know, do any, anything like that, but they would get to know each other. They'd spend time together getting to know each other. And just a side note, uh, they, they had to learn how to love one another as well. And our culture, you know, our culture tells us that love is this, this wild emotion that kind of makes us feel like we're swept away. But the Bible never portrays love that way. That's why we're told to love our enemies. You're not going to get a, an emotion that sweeps you off your feet about somebody that you don't like. Well, the Bible teaches us that love is, is a choice. It's a decision that we make with our own free will. It, it's not emotions. It has nothing to do with emotions at all. It is completely a choice. It's not uh, something that sweeps us away. It's a commitment that a person makes to willfully put another person above themselves before themselves. Ephesians 5 comes to mind where husbands are commanded to love their wives. Now, if you are commanded to love somebody, is it that easy? We all know that it's not. You can't just be commanded to to, to have this feeling. Um, It doesn't come automatically. Uh, and, And so what we need to understand is you can't command somebody to do something that has to do with the human will. So remember that one, love is a choice. Uh, and Joseph, Joseph has been learning all about Mary and learning to love her. But part of this pledge was also um, maintaining their sexual purity. And it becomes apparent that Joseph has even done that. He has kept his, uh, his purity. He's kept himself pure during this time. And that says a lot about the character of a guy. I, I love that because what it tells me as a guy especially, but just as a human being, what it tells me is that he's somebody who wanted to do things God's way. He wanted to do things God's way. How do we know that he kept himself sexually pure? Because when he finds out probably from Mary that the woman that he's pledged to marry is with child, he knows immediately, well, that's not mine. Well, that's not mine. The baby isn't his. Apparently, he's taken human, uh, you know, human biology 101, right? He knows how this stuff works, and he says, okay, uh, you know, this isn't mine, so what am I going to do here? And at this point, you know, I doubt that there's a single person who would deny for one second that Joseph had every single right in the world to be feeling anything but peace, this is a chaotic situation. There, there's, there's no reason uh, that we should think, well, you know, uh, Joseph, just, you know, suck it up and deal with it, dude. You know, it, it just happens. Uh, no, he has every right to be feeling like everything is spinning out of control. All of a sudden, everything is in chaos. 
I mean, he's thinking that Mary has been unfaithful to him before their marriage is finalized, and nothing stings worse than a promise that's made that isn't kept by someone we've chosen and made sacrifices to love and trust. There's nothing more disrupting to a person's sense of peace, and nothing hurts worse Uh, Nothing hurts hurts worse than infidelity in the context of marriage. And I think that's why God continually illustrates how awful sin is with adultery. I'm I'm thinking about like Hosea, the book of Hosea, where he's told to marry a prostitute. And he gets these kids that aren't even his. And and God says, no, you're going to raise them. You're going to love this woman. It's an illustration of God's love for us, despite the pain of sin against him. But the first thing that we learn about Joseph, based on his reaction to the discovery that Mary is with child, is that Joseph is a compassionate, just, gracious man. Even though he believes that his fiancée has been unfaithful to him, he doesn't seek to shame her. He doesn't go after revenge. He's not thinking, oh, how, can I, how can I hurt her back? And that takes a special kind of person. Not only did he not want to shame her, but the Bible tells us, uh, Matthew tells us that he was not willing to shame her. You see the difference between not wanting and not willing? There's a big difference. In other words, the opportunity was there. And no matter how good the opportunity was, Joseph wasn't going to take the bait. He wasn't going to do it. He was going to turn his back on any opportunity that he had to publicly shame her. He's a graceful man. Because Joseph was a man who was committed to doing things God's way, even when it wasn't his way, even when it didn't make sense to him, Joseph was a man who was committed to doing things God's way, and that's, you know, he, he had to have feared that if he went ahead with the marriage, it would have been something kind of like an admission of guilt. Like, everybody would have known, okay, let's see, nine months, the timing here isn't quite right. Joseph, you've only been married to her for how long? And hmm. So it would have been kind of an admission of guilt in his mind if he would have gone ahead with the marriage. And, and, and everybody else probably would have thought the same thing. Oh, Joseph. Yeah. So we can only imagine that Mary told Joseph her side of the story. The angel comes, Gabriel comes to her first. Before she is with child, the angel comes to her. And so she, she probably tells Joseph her side of the story of how Gabriel had done this and how she was going to bear the Son of God from her own undefiled, pure womb. But despite her pleadings with Joseph, he resolves to break off the pledge. He resolves to break off the pledge to be married. And this is exactly what, you know, what, what Mary, or what I think, Mary would have been afraid of. I'm positive she had to be concerned about how Joseph would respond to this news. But she's trusted God anyway. And it was God himself who would have to go and deal with Joseph about this issue, as we're about to see in the verses that follow. Now, at this point, Joseph thinks that he has two options. Two, two viable, uh, realistic options. Number one, he could divorce her publicly and let her be shamed, maybe even stoned, uh, because of, of uh, her being an adulteress in his mind. Or he could dismiss her privately so that people don't really know what's going on and spare her of all the public shame. So in Joseph's mind, when he decides that he's going to dismiss her privately, 
in a way that doesn't shame her. In his mind, he's making the most ethical, godly decision that he possibly can. But there was a third option, a better option. The story of Joseph is going to show us that sometimes when we allow God to be right there, smack dab in the middle of a horrible, chaotic situation where we feel like we've lost all control, when we allow God to be right in the middle of that, we might have more options than we realize. And one of the keys to finding peace in difficult seasons of life as we see here in these first few verses of the passage, one of the first keys we see is one of the keys to finding peace in the midst of a difficult time is to stop focusing on ourselves. Joseph isn't concerned about himself. He's concerned about Mary. He's got her in the front of his mind. How am I going to protect her dignity? You know, he's not thinking of how he can be vindicated. He's thinking of how her dignity, her her reputation can be preserved. And this is the fruit of a godly man's walk with the Lord. To put the needs and the concerns of others before our own, even when things are hectic, even when we're hurt. See, our, our instinct when life gets, gets chaotic, is to do the, the exact opposite than what Joseph's doing here. Our, our instinct, our flesh nature dictates that we would look out for our own best interests, look out for ourselves, and thus this is just kind of one of those contrarian truths to understand that going against the desire of the flesh, which is for self-exaltation, self-focus, self-preservation, This is all crucial. Going against the flesh nature is crucial to finding a godly sense of peace in the midst of chaos. So after making a decision to dismiss her privately, keeping her reputation intact, not shaming her in front of everybody, Joseph goes off and he spends some time thinking about how he's going to handle all this. And so we continue in verses 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, this passage begins by telling us that Joseph had some time. We don't know how much time, but he had some time to consider all the stuff that had happened, all the chaos that was going on around him that had suddenly been introduced into his life. The truth is, considered uh, is probably a major understatement. It would probably be more accurate to say that he was absolutely consumed by the situation. He was dwelling on it. I would would guess that he would be uh, kind of obsessing on it, because that's how we all feel when our life is, is suddenly you know, spiraling out of control, going, uh, like, like we're going the, the wrong way on a one-way street. The truth is, however, that Joseph's life was not going the wrong way down a one-way street. It was going the right way down a one-way street. This was, this was all, all that was in God's hands. This was all in accordance with God's plans, the way that, that God had planned it from eternity. And so as, as he's somewhere between... Uh, obsessing about it, grieving about it, uh, thinking about it. In the midst of all this, God intervenes by sending an angel to deal with him, to speak with him in, in a dream. 
See, in, in Joseph's mind, this situation uh, w- was impossible for him to accept. He, 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 didn't, he didn't think that he had the capacity to deal with the situation that he'd been put into. And so God sends this, a, this angel to help Joseph understand the significance of all this. Not from Joseph's perspective, but from God's perspective. And this isn't necessarily... Uh, it's not necessarily a common thing. It's not necessarily an uncommon thing for God to, to speak to people in dreams or give people direction in, in dreams. Uh, you know, if you, if you go to any bookstore, uh, you'll find scores of books on interpreting dreams, and there's some really wacky stuff out there, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, people uh, tend to try to seek uh, meaning and direction in their lives uh, from their subconscious mind. And apparently, uh, you know, this is nothing new. The Jews also looked for meaning and direction uh, from their dreams. Uh, God first spoke to Abimelech in a dream in Genesis chapter 20. Then he spoke to Jacob in a dream. He spoke to Pharaoh uh, and Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him uh, direction in dreams as well. And today there are stories of how God comes to Muslims in their dreams in their dreams, he comes to them, he, he tells them the gospel, he tells them about Jesus, and then, the per, and then he tells the person who's dreaming to follow him. Pretty cool stuff. But so, so this is, I think, at least one of the answers we have to questions we might have about that guy, that, that one proverbial guy who's stuck out in the middle of the forest somewhere in the middle of Africa and, you know, someplace where missionaries have never been. And, you know, obviously there's never been a church there. There's never been a Bible there. The gospel's never reached this, this, this hypothetical forest, you know, in the middle of Africa. And this, there's this guy living in the middle of it. Well, how could, how could he possibly hear about Jesus? Jesus. Dreams. God has the ability to reach, reach people, give direction to people in the dream, in a dream. Uh, God isn't limited in his, uh, his resources. If a person is receptive to God and seeking God and, and, and ready to, to respond with, yeah, I'm available, God, yeah, he, he can go to them in a dream. With that said, let me, let me balance that. Because people can, can interpret all kinds of crazy stuff from their dreams. And so we, we do need to have balance. We do need to have a rock to measure by. So I would say that while God might give you direction for your life in a dream, it all has to be balanced with God's word. Test everything. I mean, I mean everything. Traditions, uh, dreams, um, worldviews, agendas, every belief that you have about yourself and about others. I'd, I'd even say, you know what, you, sh- you should test my teachings. You know, make sure that my teachings are lining up with Scripture. There are far too many people, there are far too many people who never test what they get taught in church. And so then when they're confronted with, with the truth, they don't even recognize it as truth because they've never recognized recognized how, how false their untested beliefs were. So test everything, dreams included. Test everything against God's word because there is no certainty that our dreams or any of these other things are authoritative by any means. But the Bible, as God's holy word, is always authoritative. And so Joseph has this dream in which he's confronted visited by this this messenger from the Lord, this angel from the Lord, who gives Joseph the same advice that Mary received from Gabriel. First of all, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
That indicates that he, he was feeling scared about this decision, maybe some, some apprehension. So that's the first thing that we see. But secondly, the child in Mary's womb really was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And look at how the, how the angel addresses Joseph. He calls him son of David. Son of David. That's very, very significant because all the Jews knew, and Joseph included, all the Jews knew that the Messiah had to come from the line of David. Now, if, if Joseph hadn't been related to David in any way, shape, or form, he, he couldn't have believed what the angel was telling him. This is where that balance comes in, right? Let's say that Joseph was not in the lineage of David and an angel comes to him and says, you're going to be the, uh, the, 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 dad, the dad of the Messiah. Could Joseph have believed it? No, because it doesn't line up with Scripture. So that's where we find this balance, where we test everything against Scripture. David was in the lineage of David. And so it was valid. It was biblically sound. Now, whether or not God or an angel from God appears to us in, in a dream or a vision or whatever, the underlying principle that Joseph is demonstrating for us here is that when we turn our decisions over to God and, and we open our hearts and open our minds to what his will might be, to what he might have to say about what we should or shouldn't do, his peace can overtake us even in the most chaotic of circumstances. Joseph didn't have all the facts straight about the situation with Mary, but he was willing to listen and take direction from the Lord through the angel. Now, how do we find that? How do we, how do we find the, this, this kind of peace? How do we find this, this direction? Where do we find a place where we can see his will and make ourselves available to it? We find it in his word. We can find it through prayer, too. You know, God can lay something heavy on our heart, which we would test against his word. So it's primarily in his word and prayer. As we're studying God's word regularly and praying uh, regularly, we wait. And sometimes we wait and wait and wait, knowing that God is answering our prayers in one way or another. Even if we can't see it with our own eyes, we know that he's working all things to the good of those who love him. And just in case, just in case, Joseph didn't realize how serious this was, the angel tells Joseph that the baby is to be named Yeshua, Jesus, which, as we saw last week, means Jehovah is salvation, or God saves. And this had to be done. This had to be done, because we can't save ourselves from our sin, and we can't save ourselves from the consequences of our sin. We are totally helpless when it comes to our fallen sin nature, no matter how good we might seem in comparison to the world, no matter how good we might be in our own eyes, we, we can't do anything by our own strength to be reconciled to God because God is holy. Only Jesus can reconcile us with God. Contrary to the garbage that you might hear from you know, somebody on TV who uh, maybe smiles a little bit too much. Um, Jesus did not come to make our lives better in a worldly sense. He did not come so that you can have your best life now. He came so that you could have eternity with him, which is way better than anything this world has to offer. He did not come in order, by the way, that we would financially prosper. That's not what it was about. He didn't come to help us save ourselves. That's not what it was about either. 
He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to redeem anyone who would trust in him and his work on Calvary, on Calvary, submitting their lives to him as Lord and Savior. And if a person can do that, they are redeemed. They are in him. He came to bring us peace. Because whether we realize it or not, humanity is at war with God. We are God's enemies by nature. But he came, Jesus came to give us a choice to not be God's enemy, but to be redeemed. This is not peace as the world understands it, but as God understands it. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, verse 51. He said, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now, there seems to be something of a, of a contradiction here, but bear with me. We're going to work this out. Uh, Jesus came to divide? Yes, because he came to separate his people. The people that he had redeemed, he came to separate them from the world. And so logically, what we have to understand is that this act of separation requires division. And this is one of the great works, one of the great evidences of God's work in a believer's life, whereby he makes us his own and teaches us to treasure him and to separate ourselves from the world rather than treasuring something in the world and being a part of the world. That's where we find more and more of God's peace in division, in separation from the world. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus knew that he was about to be taken away from his disciples and that things were about to become chaotic. Things were about to be thrown into all kinds of crazy directions. And Jesus says this to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's from John chapter 14, verse 27. So Jesus did come to bring peace, but not the way the world understands it. Without a deep trust in God's character, without a deep trust in his, his ability to do what we think is impossible by our own understanding, and without a deep trust of his sovereignty, no person has peace. No person has ever known true peace. The best they can experience is the world's type of peace, which is no peace at all. You know, we, we send guys with machine guns into countries and we call them peacemakers. That's not peace. That's not true peace. Because springs of true peace will never flow from the polluted, murky waters of the well of the unregenerate heart. Only Jesus can bring us true peace. And that's why the angels told the shepherds, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God is pleased with his Son. Remember at Jesus' baptism, when he goes to the river to see John the Baptist, and all of a sudden there's this voice from the sky, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. God is pleased with his Son. And because God is pleased with Jesus, he's pleased with those in whom Jesus dwells and who dwell in him. And this, this is the fountain of all true peace. This son that Mary was about to have, Jesus, conceived in the undefiled and holy womb of the woman whose hand Joseph was pledged to take in marriage. This was necessary. Let's continue. 
verses 22 and 23. Matthew says this. He says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now see, the whole, the whole scene is over. This isn't the angel speaking anymore. This is, this is Matthew kind of giving a commentary on the narrative. And Matthew does this type of thing over and over again throughout his book. He'll say something like, you know, this took place in order to fulfill. Uh, to fulfill and you know, he'll, he'll list off this prophecy. And you know, he, he quotes from the Old Testament. The only reason that Matthew did that was because he was writing to the very, very earliest Christians who were predominantly Jewish. They knew the signs to look for. They knew that this was important. Uh, and, and, and other Jews needed to know this if they were going to believe uh, that Jesus was this Messiah. And so in this case, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 7.14, which tells us that the Messiah would be called Emmanuel. And this wasn't going to be his literal name. Uh, rather, it was a description of his role. It would describe what he would be, what he would do. Because he is God incarnate, because he is God in the flesh, he was literally and physically God with us, as one of us. Now, on a side note, Matthew concludes his book with this very same theme of God being with us. As Jesus uh, says, I am with you always. God with us. The child in Mary's womb is, as the Nicene Creed declares, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He was not, Jesus was not, you know, just some guy who was a, a really good teacher. Uh, he, he wasn't just, you know, a really moralistic type of person. Uh, he, he wasn't just a philosopher who was way ahead of his time. He was, and he still is, God with us. Let's finish it up with verses 24 and 25. We read, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. When God gives us direction, when he reveals his will to us, he expects us to submit in full obedience to his will and to follow Notice that Joseph didn't ask any questions. Even Mary asked a couple, you know, really innocent questions, like, how is this going to happen? Joseph didn't ask any questions. No question asked. I'm going to do what the Lord says. When a person is completely out of touch with God's will, and thus they're bearing no fruit in their life, it's not because following God's plans (coughs) doesn't produce fruit in a person's life, evidence of God's indwelling presence in a person's life. If there's no fruit in a person's life, it's because they're failing to abide in Christ. John 15, Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. Abide in me and you can do everything. Real, true, tested, bona fide faith will be accompanied by obedience. By, which means, by the way, works. It'll be accompanied by works. In other words, while we can't be saved by our own works, uh, a faith that is not evidenced by works is a dead faith. And we all know the verse that has confused every single one of us probably at some point or another. James says, uh, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
Man, that, that'll throw a, a young believer, uh, even some mature believers, into a tailspin. It, it seems so contrary to the gospel. But what he's saying is that true faith acts or, or works in accordance with God's will. We are his worksmanship created for good works in Christ. Who, he set these things up before all of time in order that we would walk in them. So we aren't saved by good works. Perish the thought. We are not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. And if they're completely absent from our lives, we need to go back to square one, put our our lives under the microscope, and take a closer look, examining ourselves to make sure that we're legitimately in Christ. You know, verse 24 here is probably the most important verse in this whole passage. Joseph was a godly man, who tried to do godly things like showing compassion to, to, to Mary, even though maybe she, he didn't feel like she was necessarily deserving of it. That's what grace is. He's going to give her something that, in his mind, she doesn't deserve. And he was receptive to God's will. He was receptive to God's plan for his life, and thus he allowed God to speak into what would be his ultimate and final decision. Listen, the most dangerous thing in the world. The worst thing that you or I can possibly ever do is to hear or to understand what God's will is for our lives, things that we should or shouldn't do, things that he expects us to do, and then decide, that doesn't work for me. And so we turn our backs on God's will and do otherwise, do something different. We we rebel. That's such a dangerous place to be. Imagine that you'd just been uh, diagnosed with, with a horrible disease that, that's going to take your life. And the good news is that you can take medicine for this stuff. For whatever this disease is, you can take medicine for it and you'll, you'll, you'll be fine in just a couple weeks. And so you go to see your doctor and your doctor writes you a prescription. You go to, to Walgreens and you get your prescription filled and you go home and you read the instructions and it says, yeah, you take this for two weeks and you'll be fine. You've heard all these stories on the news about how it's got a 100% success rate. Everybody who takes this is fine. And you say, okay, I, I believe that this stuff will take it. And you put it right back on the shelf and you close the medicine cabinet. And we all know what's going to happen from there. And you say, oh, but, but I believe that this medicine would save me. But you didn't act in accordance with that belief. That is what James would call dead faith. Friends, the only way to experience, truly experience the peace of God, the peace which Paul describes as surpassing all human understanding. The only way to find it is by acting in willful obedience to God. When all is said and done, you know, at the end of our lives, there is nothing greater that can be said of any single one of us than that we were obedient to the will of God in our lives. No, I, I know how this works. You know, we say, uh, you know, we're in church and we say, okay, I'm going to do God's will. And, and, and then we go out and we're confronted with a difficult situation and we start thinking, oh, my way is so much easier. My way doesn't require all this sacrifice. Uh, and, and so uh, what we find is we're relying on ourselves and, and we're just grasping for peace. We can't find it. See, if we're we're being honest, we all know that we struggle with this issue because each one of us has our own individual free will and our own individual understanding of what's best. 
And then there's God's understanding, which is always best. Following our own understanding does not bring us God's peace. Rather, it leads us in the opposite direction from peace, from God's peace. Away from that because our hearts are just so desperately deceitful. We're like sheep who go astray because we're convinced that we've got a better plan than the shepherd. Or maybe we just don't trust the shepherd all that much. Joseph had a plan which revealed that he was, by any person's standard, a good, godly man, but God's plan was better. It always is. Following God's plan is not going to make your life a whole lot easier. It can make your life harder following God's will. There's no question about that. You know, Joseph knew that he would probably be ridiculed by those who didn't believe uh, in in Jesus. He'd be ridiculed as that one carpenter uh, whose wife, conceived a child with somebody else. He faced the possibility of feeling really humiliated, but he took the risk. He accepted the fact that, you know, this, this could be bad. This could get ugly. I could be humiliated. And he stepped out in faith. And we're all tempted. We're all tempted to avoid doing what we know is good and right because we don't want to be, we don't want to be scorned. We don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to be mocked by others. But when we understand God's will... It's an easy decision. That's where true peace is found. By trusting God enough to act in obedience to Him and trusting Him so much that nothing else even matters. It all just fades away. Nothing else matters except God's will, even when it's difficult, even when it has a steep cost or requires a sacrifice on our behalf. There will be a time when your life feels like it's out of control. There will be that time. But when our life feels like it's out of control, the reality is it's only out of our control. God is in the midst of the chaos. So wait, trust, believe that he's working for your greatest good because that's where peace is found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that you came to bring peace through whatever means necessary. We thank you that you have called us out of the world, out of the murky waters of the world, and you've cleaned us off because we are incapable of cleaning ourselves off, Lord, before you. And you've made yourself one with us so that we dwell in you and you dwell in us in order that when we stand before the Father someday, we can be seen as good and acceptable because you are good and acceptable. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your righteousness was imputed to us on the cross. But that required that you come and you live like one of us in order to save us. We thank you and we praise you for that, Lord. In light of your sacrifice, all the sacrifices that you you made, all the things that you gave up in order to save us, Lord. May we be motivated to live lives that glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us 
going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.